0: morning, and let me offer my greeting and welcome and praise to all the mothers this morning. Um, We are so thankful for all of you, as it's been said, whether you are a biological mom, a stepmom, a spiritual mom, the investment that you make reaches farther than you might even realize. And we are thankful for all of you. And, and don't forget, we do have something for you as you leave this morning. Uh, I am glad and excited to be able to bring the word this morning as uh, Pastor Greg and Carol, and Zach, they are back east celebrating with their family as their son Nathan was graduating from Liberty University this weekend. Uh, and so they were able to be there with, along with Pastor's mother who flew from Phoenix and were able to have kind of a small little family gathering as they celebrated their son's accomplishment, And I believe they are traveling back this morning, so we just want to keep them in our prayers as they return home. And Pastor Greg will be back here next Sunday. Well, if you would, I'm going to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 22. And we are going to read verses 34 through 40 as this will be the central passage for our time together. So I invite you to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word. And Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40 reads, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Thus ends the reading of the holy, inspired, and infallible word of God. May the Holy Spirit write its truth on our hearts. Please be seated. And would you join me in prayer for the message this morning? Oh, Father and great God, our sovereign ruler over all creation and author of our salvation, we thank you, God, for the acts of grace and mercy in giving us your word, that we might know you and your great love for us. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through this text today, that that we might get better understanding and better understand what you require of us, your children, of how we are to love you and reflect your love to others. Lord, I humbly ask that you would guide me and guard my tongue as I proclaim your word to your people. It's in the holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Now, for those of you that are keeping track, it may seem like we jumped quite a bit from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 22. Okay. Um, Bert was actually joking with me this morning, saying it's like a spoiler alert. It's like the person that likes to read the end of the book before 's find out if it's going to be any good. We're just going to flip over to the back, see if we should keep reading this chat, this book. But yeah, it, it's fine, totally. It's we should keep going through the Book of Matthew, and we will keep going through the Book of Matthew. Um, this is just we're we're kind of considering this a, a a one-off passage, even though it is part of this study through the Gospel of Matthew that we're doing. Uh, When I knew that I would be speaking this Sunday with pastor being out of town, I asked him, would it be all right if I preached the message that I was supposed to preach back in January? And I wasn't able to do so because of illness in our family. Uh, It was supposed to be kind of a New Year's, I think it was January 2nd, I was supposed to be here and uh, we had a bout of illness in our family. I wasn't able to be here that Sunday. And I spent that time preparing the message, and I thought, well, maybe I could go ahead and just preach that, even though it 's kind of interjecting in the middle of Matthew. The pastor said that would be fine um, it 'll be a while before he gets to twenty two anyway so um, we 're at the rate we 're going, which is fine so so're um, so we 're going to so continue, so to speak in the in our study of matthew, but it 's just taking a slight detour. And as I said, this was supposed to be a kind of New Year's message. There was a lot of that, that running through uh, the, the sermon that morning. I had to make some adjustments, at least to that part of it. If it slips out and I start talking about things that are happening like around Christmas time, I just remember like, oh, that was supposed to be back in January. So I did try to make, make adjustments. but um, And it was as we talk about resolutions, which is what we, we would have talked about in January. Um, maybe you failed to keep yours. And this would be a good reminder to get back on track. So if you hear any of that talk come out, just think, oh, how how have I been doing on those New Year's resolutions that I made several months before? So as we look to this one off message, which was meant to be a challenge for the New Year, we'll just take it as a mid year evaluation. Especially if one of your resolutions was to be more like Jesus this year. Can we look back and see that we have made improvements? Can we see where maybe we've slipped up? Now, of course, a resolution to be more like Jesus can be a bit ambiguous and a little bit of an unattainable goal. It's not even—it's the most um, measurable goal. See, we can attempt to put ourselves against the picture of Christ that we have in Scripture, and we're soon going to realize that we will always fall short of being like Jesus. And being more like Jesus doesn't exactly set a high standard. Now, Jesus, don't hear me, me, don't mishear me on this, Jesus is a high standard. But we can move a fraction of an inch closer to him and be more like Jesus. We were more like Jesus than we were previously because we took a very small step. So that's why I say that it's not necessarily a high standard. And then there's the issue of turning this desire into a legalistic activity, checking off boxes, or doing things simply because it's what is expected of us. So as I was thinking about how I could be more like Christ, I was led to this passage, and I felt that it would be a good challenge for us all this morning. I titled the message, A Familiar Command, because what we're going to look at this morning isn't some revelatory truth bomb that I'm about to drop on all of us. It's something that most all of us know quite well, we're familiar with, we encounter it on a regular basis, and yet oftentimes we miss the challenge that is being set before us. If you were to ask someone from New York City, how often do they take notice of the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building? Or ask someone that frequents or lives in San Francisco, how often do they take pictures as they go across the Golden Gate Bridge? For those that live there, it's just another feature. They don't even notice it anymore. It's just something that has, it's in the background. Or to use maybe a more universal illustration, think about your nose. How often do you notice your nose? Did you know that your eyes see your nose at all times? But your brain just tells yourself not to pay attention to it. Because it is always there. You just ignore it because it's always right there. And we probably don't even notice our nose until we have a cold. Or we smell something unpleasant. But it's, but it's one of the most central parts of our face. And I think the same can be said about this command that is given here in this passage. It is such a central part to who we are as Christians. And yet sometimes we don't think much about it. Or give it much notice. So my hope this morning is to extend a challenge, first to myself, and then to all of you, to make this familiar command that Christ gives here in Matthew 22 a more prominent feature in our lives. In 1967, John Lennon and the rest of the Beatles told the world that all you need is love. A number of other singers, from Dion Jackson to Madonna to Ashley Simpson, have told us that love makes the world go round. And then some have said love may not make the world go round, but it makes the ride worthwhile. Every time period throughout the ages has poems, songs, books, and stories that point to love as the greatest achievement. The sumum bonum or highest good. And when we read the words of Christ here in Matthew's gospel, it would appear that God would agree. However, it's a quite different kind of love that is being discussed in our passage today. We're not talking about a normal human love, but a divine kind of love that only God can produce. So when I talk about a familiar command, we're going to be looking at this command to love. To love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we'll see how these two commands cannot be separated and done independently of each other. But before we get into what we're supposed to do, we are given an example of what a knowledge of God minus a love for God looks like as we come to our first major point this morning, and that is a full head and a cold heart. So this passage begins by telling us that Jesus Had just silenced the Sadducees when they tried to trap him by asking him a question about the resurrection. If you look at verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. And so you have to go back to the beginning or the previous passage to understand what did he silence them on? Well, they had asked him a question about the resurrection. Now to understand a little bit more about that question you have to understand a little bit about the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a religious sect similar to the Pharisees but just of a higher class of society and they held some different beliefs such as they did not they or there was a rejection of angels and other spirit, uh, other spirits and and predominantly a rejection of a future resurrection. Which is why they were attempting to trip up Jesus with their question that was previously asked in verses 24 through 28. And if you, go to, if, you look at, if you look at the whole context of what's happening here, that question is actually the, the third question in a line of questions that have been launched at Jesus that's found going back from chapter 21 through chapter 22 with our passage here in verses 34 through 40. This is the fourth question that is being posed to Jesus. And then the chapter finishes with Jesus turning the tables and then asking the question. But these series of questions that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were firing off were not because they were trying to learn from Jesus. But they were meant to try and trip him up, to trap him. This was, they, were, they were treating this like the, a press conference where there's always that one reporter or investigator that's trying to get the person being interviewed to say something, they're baiting him into saying something wrong that they can use to accuse them. That's what they're doing. They're asking all these questions to see if Jesus could say something that they could either use as an attack against him for themselves or to get his followers to turn against him. So the first question came up in chapter 21 regarding Jesus' authority, which Jesus turned back on them by asking them about John the Baptist's ministry, during which John pointed to Jesus as the authority from God. And then in chapter 22, we see them question Jesus about paying taxes, which Jesus answers perfectly by telling them to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And then we have the Sadducees' question about who would be a woman's husband in heaven if she had remarried six times and each of her husbands died. Well, Jesus took the opportunity to not only correctly answer their question by telling them that there would not be marriage in heaven— but then to correct their erroneous belief about the resurrection itself. He quoted Exodus 3, which they would have been familiar with, that, the God, that God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then he tells them, he states that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so this response to the Sadducees was sort of this mic drop moment where Jesus says, just kind of just boom, leaves it there, and they're just like stunned in silence. They don't know what to say. It's not so much that they're they're, they're not stunned in silence because they believe what Jesus had to say. They just want to be careful not to dig themselves any deeper. So enter one of the teachers and experts of the law. Now, the Sadducees, they've said, you know, we don't want to embarrass ourselves any further. Well, this guy steps up and says, I bet I can do it. It's like, I mean... Guys, you're young, you know, you got all your buddies together, and you, they all do something, somebody does something stupid. And the next guy goes, you know what, I think I could do that. I could accomplish that, and I won't, whatever stupid thing happened to him won't happen to me. I'm going to do that, and then it happens to him. The next guy goes, well, I can do it better, so I'll do it, and that won't happen to me. But it's just constantly, it's just repeating itself. It's, there's the same consequences happening, and then this guy steps up and says, like, I bet it'll be different if I ask him a question. So this teacher steps up to ask Jesus this question. This was the arrogance of this Pharisee. And in his example, we see a couple of mistakes that are far too common today among unbelievers and among those who would call themselves Christians. First, we see that this man, along with the rest of the Pharisees, he was more concerned with seeking validation than seeking truth. So the whole point of this debate with Jesus was to try and discredit him. This scene takes place in the middle of Passover week, Passion week, just days before Jesus is to be crucified. And in chapter 21, we have Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. At which point, many of the religious leaders were welcoming to Jesus because they still thought he was going to lead a charge against the Romans, release Israel from their oppression, but instead, Jesus attacks them, starting with the cleansing of the temple, followed by three parables that spoke of their exclusion from the kingdom of God. He tells the Pharisees, he says, you're like sons who say that they'll obey and then don't. Then he says they're like tenant farmers who lease out a farm and then kill the servants and the son of the one who leased it to them before they pay the debt. And then finally, he tells them they're like guests who are invited to a wedding who refuse to come and are therefore shut out. So the animosity toward Christ was growing from these so-called religious leaders. But they knew they had to be careful because he had garnered quite the following. So they knew they couldn't just get rid of him for fear of backlash from the people. So they sought to discredit him by asking these questions during his public teaching. So when this man, this lawyer, approaches Jesus to ask his questions, he wasn't doing so, again, to actually try and learn something, but to try and trap Jesus through his response, and thus bringing validation to their claims of superiority. This was a matter of pride for the Pharisees. After all, they were the supposed experts in the law. And this had been a source of contention with the Pharisees ever since Jesus showed up. In Christ's first recorded sermon, which Pastor Greg has been leading us through in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins by questioning the people's understanding of the law, which they would have received from the teaching of the Pharisees. And so at every turn, Jesus is challenging their teaching and thus challenging their influence over the people. They didn't like that Jesus was getting all of this attention. They didn't like that they were losing followers. So they sent in one of their best, one of their most knowledgeable scribes, an expert in the law, to try and trap Jesus. Now some commentators differ on the motivation of this lawyer. Some say that he was genuinely interested in Jesus' answer, But that he was still a pawn in this game that the Pharisees were playing. While others think that his intent was explicitly malicious, and even he he even calls Jesus teacher mockingly. Well, either way, the text tells us that the question was meant to be a trap for Jesus. The Pharisees as a group were not concerned with what Jesus might teach them, rather, that he might say something that they could give them cause, that would give them cause to accuse him. This approach is taken by many people today, even those who might profess to be Christians. They rush to their Bibles to find verses that validate their beliefs, while also trying to find verses that would contradict the teachings that they don't like. Right, what comes to mind most um, obviously as I was thinking about this is the, that those who would argue against, that, that they would argue and say that homosexuality isn't a sin or that abortion isn't a sin these people will ignore the majority of what the Bible says about these issues, then they will find that one verse that if you tilt your head, you squint hard enough, you can make the case that it supports your opinion. If you try to share with someone who argues that homosexuality isn't a sin, and and, and if you point to the Old Testament law, or if you point to the writings of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, the response is usually, well, the Old Testament doesn't apply anymore. Or they say, I don't follow Paul, I follow Jesus. And Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Except that he did. In Matthew 19, when he quoted from Genesis, saying, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. By pointing to the institution of marriage in Genesis 2, Jesus was affirming the order that God had established, and he was affirming the teaching of the Old Testament. But it isn't just these prominent sins that cause people to act this way. Every time we attempt to justify any sinful behavior, it harkens back to Genesis 3 with the serpent whispering in our ear, did God really say? We question the authority of God and we go looking for validation that what we believe is right and ultimately what it boils down to is pride because we don't want to be challenged in what we are doing. We don't want to believe that, what we, that we, what we are wrong. And so this was one mistake that we see the Pharisees making here, that they were being too prideful, only seeking validation, in their way of thinking was right. Well, the second mistake that they're making, and again, it's another one that is common today, is that they were focused on the law and not the lawgiver. By asking Jesus this question, the Pharisees were, were hoping to show that Jesus was attempting to diminish the teaching of Moses in some way. They wanted this Jewish audience to hear for themselves that this Jesus was here to cast aspersions on their hero. After all, Moses met with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend, and God had given his law directly to Moses. So they're hoping that this question can be used to trap Jesus into saying that one of the laws that God gave to Moses was not as important as whatever Jesus might say in response. But the irony of this is that that is what, exactly what the Pharisees have done. And pastors talked about this and as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount and we've talked about the way the Pharisees approached the law that they're so wrapped up in trying to keep the law perfectly that they've gone so far as to impose laws on themselves and others that God did not give them in order to prevent them from breaking the command that God did give. They came up they they they, they devised upwards of 1500 fence laws to keep people from breaking the law that God had given. Now there's nothing wrong with setting boundaries for yourself based on your personal conviction. But once you start imposing those boundaries on others, you have crossed over into legalism or keeping the law for the law's sake. The Pharisees had said that there were 248 affirmative laws, positive commands, things that you must do. 248 laws, one for every limb in the body. And then there were 365 negative laws. That, the, and so we have 365, one for every day of the year. I don't know where these numbers came from or why it's significant, but that's what they they just they, they were just big numbers. I don't know. I, I don't even know if 248 is correct. I don't know if that's. In, I don't know how are they how, how many limbs they came out with 248, but that's what they said. That was the that was just the Jewish understanding of where the, that that's why it was important. But 248, uh, 365. They had these 613 laws that they said that they were given. That were given in God's law. But 613, that's too many to, for anybody to expect to follow. So they split them up. This is the Pharisees are doing this. They split them up into heavy laws and light laws. And so the light laws were semi-optional. The heavy laws were binding. So the Pharisees were already ranking the commands of God into categories when they asked Jesus to do the same thing, when they asked Him, what is the greatest command? Later in chapter 23, when He delivers the woes to the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus is going to point out how they put these heavy burdens on the shoulders of the people while they were unwilling to even lift a finger to serve God. They were already into the sliding scale of law-keeping. And this is a prime example of missing the forest for the trees. The law was given that we might know God and understand that He is a perfect and holy God. Well, the Pharisees were less concerned about keeping these commands that they might have a relationship with God and more about keeping score with their neighbor over who was better at keeping the law. And again, things haven't changed much today. We still have people who think that the only way they will get to heaven is by making sure that they've checked all the right boxes on their act-like-a-Christian checklist. And there are certainly people in the church and in pulpits who put these same heavy burdens on themselves and on others, choosing to focus on the laws and the commands given by God and totally missing on the relationship with God Himself. When we read through the Ten Commandments, they should help us understand more about God and our relationship with Him, and not just give us a list of do's and don'ts. You shall have no other gods before me doesn't just prohibit us from worshiping other things or creating idols for ourselves, but it is meant to show us that God alone is worthy of our worship, because there is none like God, and He is our supreme and ultimate authority. You shall not lie is not just a prohibition to speak falsely, but it teaches us that God is concerned with truth, Because he himself is truth and is the standard of truth. So our lesson from this Pharisee and the question that he posed is that our focus should be more on the essence of the law rather than on being an expert in the law. That is not to say that we we don't need to know and study God's law. We should know it. We should strive to keep it to the best of our ability. And we should be concerned when we and our fellow believers break it. But without a relationship with God, the law giver, then the law is simply an accuser, a measuring tool for condemnation, which is why Jesus' response to this law expert is so important as we come to our second major point, and that is an all-consuming love for God. So if our goal is to be more like Jesus, the Pharisees have given us a prime example of what not to do. We shouldn't come to Jesus with a full head and a cold heart. But we have, in Jesus' response to this question about which law was the greatest, the model for being more Christ-like. Jesus knew the hearts of these men, these Pharisees. He knew they were trying to test him. He knew that they were trying to pit his teachings against the teachings of Moses. So what did he do? He quoted Moses. He quoted Deuteronomy 6, 5 to them in this section of the Shema. The Shema comprised the text of Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. It was also Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21, and Numbers 15, 37 through 41. This was the, the, the Hebrew teaching of the Shema. It's called the Shema after the first word of the section, which begins, Hear, O Israel. Here, the Hebrew word for hear is Shema. So when they would, that's what they referred to it as, and it was probably the most prominent teaching in Judaism, it's the most copied scripture, most quoted. It would have been recited twice a day, and they took its instructions quite literally. Let's look at the passage in Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. If, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can. I'm, just, I'm going to read it. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And they put boxes on their doorposts that would have contained this passage. They made little boxes called phylacteries that they would strap then to their foreheads and to their wrists. That would hold the words of this teaching. So when Jesus says that the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. He is showing them, first of all, he's no apostate. He's not out of line with the teaching of Moses. He's right in the middle of the teachings of Moses. And secondly, he is showing them, just as we we just discussed, that they are missing the point of the law. Here were men, some who probably had one of these boxes on their doorposts at home. Some of them were probably wearing them as he taught them in that moment. And yet they didn't understand why they were doing it. When God gave Israel the law, it wasn't so that they could have a relationship with Him. It was because they had a relationship with Him. If you read in the account in Exodus 20, where God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, it begins with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God didn't give Israel the law while they were still slaves in Egypt and say, if you keep these commands, I promise to rescue you. He had already rescued them. And it was because they had been saved that they were given the law. Because they were God's people and out of love for their rescuer, their redeemer, they should want to obey his commands. So Jesus is reminding the people that the law is about love. We don't obey the law out of obligation, but out of love for a God who has rescued us, who has saved us. And as we said, this is an all-consuming love. Now this list that is given by Christ, which was first given by God to Moses, although quoted slightly different, was meant to show that we are to love God with all that we are, with every part of our being. First, with our hearts, which would have been understood to the original audience to be the essence or core of their identity. The Hebrews saw the heart as the intellect, for from it comes our thoughts, which produces our words, which produces our actions. Proverbs four twenty three tells us to keep your heart with all vigilance, for, for from it flows the springs of life. As a man thinks in his heart that he is. We are to love God with the fullness of our intellect in our thoughts in the essence of who we are. We are also to love him with our soul. Now, here is more of what we might think of as heart. As the soul was thought of more where our emotions came from. We can see throughout Scripture the word soul being used to describe deep emotions. In Matthew 26, verse 38, Christ cries out, My soul is troubled. Or the psalmist in Psalm 94, 19, writes, so when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. And then Christ says that we are to love God with all of our mind. Now, this is where he differs from what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, as Moses used the word might. Now, this wasn't a misquote. It wasn't a miscopy uh, mis- by the scribe, whoever wrote the scriptures. Uh, this, this wasn't a det- an attempt to change what Moses said. Both words carry the idea of strength or or strength of determination. It's our will. In Mark's gospel, the word strength is added to simply show that that's that's what he was getting at when he's talking about our mind and our might. It's that determination of our will, the, the strength that we have there. We are to love God with our whole being. As Paul writes in Romans 13, verse 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So when Jesus says that the great and first commandment is to love God, he is simply summarizing the first tablet of the law. The first four commandments of the Ten Commandments, which are referred to as horizontal commandments, as they deal with our relationship with God. If you were to separate the tablets of the law, the first four are horizontal. They deal with our relationship with God. And then the remaining six are vertical. They deal with our relationships with other people. So these first four, these are these horizontal commands. We are to have no other gods before him. We are to not make any images of God or worship false idols. We're not to take his name in vain. We are to honor the Sabbath as a day of rest and worship. All of these are summed up with love God with all that you are. But as, as is the case in most areas where we would like to see personal improvement, we must ask ourselves, why do I need to improve? Why am I not doing this already? As I mentioned, you know, New Year's resolutions at the beginning, you know, you talk about one of the, one of the more common resolutions is, you know, I want to be healthier or, you know, I want to lose weight. I want to be active more. It's like, well, why do you make that resolution? You have to ask yourself, Why am I not being healthy now? What is it that I'm not doing right now that I need to be doing better? Is it because I don't exercise? Is it because I eat the wrong things? Or is it because I eat too much of the right things? Um, We see where we we are falling short and we attempt to do better. So with this command to love God with all that we are, we have to look at why do I need to improve? Why am I not doing this already? Why do I not already love God with all that we are? Well, the first reason I see is that we fail to love God because we think we aren't able. We may not be aware that we do this. It may be more of a subconscious thing that we do, but, we, but many times we don't love God because we believe that we can't. Well, let me try to put your mind at ease. You can't. You can't love Jesus the way he commands us to. You can't can't love like Jesus commands us to, you can't love like Moses commands us to, because to have this type of love for God is unnatural for us because we are sinners. We're born in sin, and as sinners, our hearts are bent away from God. Now, if you're here this morning, and you've never given your life to Christ, and you're hearing this command to love God with your whole self, your whole being, please understand that you cannot just decide to do this on your own at least not until your hearts are at peace with God, and that is something that we cannot do of ourselves. J.C. Ryle writes, When we feel our sins forgiven and ourselves reconciled to our Holy Maker, then and not until then we shall love Him and have the spirit of adoption. Faith in Christ is the true spring of love to God. They love most who feels most forgiven. So as it says in 1 John 4, 9, which we read during our invocation, we love because He first loved us. We cannot love God if He has not set His love toward us. And then for those of us who have had our hearts changed by God, who have been saved, well, let me put your mind at ease as well, because even the Christian can feel like it's impossible to love God with our whole being. It feels impossible because it is. Even as Christians, we still sin and we fall short of God's glory. So we can rightfully say that there is never one moment where we love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. But that is why we have Christ. Because there has never been one moment where He hasn't loved God with all of His heart and all His soul and all of His mind. Our ability to love God comes in trusting in the completed work of Christ who imputed to us his righteousness. And through Christ, the requirement of the law has been fulfilled so we can stop trying to place this heavy burden on ourselves in fulfilling the law. We cannot love God perfectly, but we can love him truly because he has loved us. Now, I didn't say that we're to stop obeying the law only to stop trying to fulfill the law. We should still try to love, the, love God with all of our heart and soul and mind. But this is actually where we see many others fail to love God, and that's because they do not want to obey Him. So if the first reason that I gave, if, it was, if that's more of a subconscious choice, that we think that we can't obey God the way we're supposed to, the second one is definitely more of a conscious choice choice it's the idea that i don't need to obey all the commands of god because in those areas where i do fall short i can just ask forgiveness but to display such an attitude is to show that you actually don't love god because let's look at the words of jesus in john's gospel In john 14 15 says if you love me you will keep my commandments And then John writes in his first epistle, in 1 John 2, 4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Pastor John MacArthur writes that the Ten Commandments themselves make clear that love for and obedience to God are inseparable. A person who belongs to God loves God and therefore obeys God. This perceived imbalance between the command to o- obey God and the inability to do so to perfection is highlighted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, verse 15. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. This was true love for God. Because even though Paul did not always do what it was right, he always loved what is right and longed to do what was honoring to God. MacArthur goes on to say that that was the opposite attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees, whom Jesus repeatedly condemned for making great pretense of love for God on the outside, while having no inward love for Him at all. They were interested only in the outward religious ceremonies and actions that fed their self-righteousness. Although they recited the Shema with meticulous regularity, that verbal declaration of love for God was hollow and meaningless. We don't obey the commands of God because it produces any righteousness of our own, but because we have been clothed in Christ's righteousness. Our only response is a desire to please God through our obedience. So the answer to this scribe's question about which is the greatest commandment, Jesus says it is love. It's a love for God because of what he has done for us. But then Jesus took it a bit further. If the first tablet of the law could be summed up into a love for God, then the second one could be summed up into a love for others. So we've moved from this vertical relationship between us and God, and now it's a horizontal relationship, and how God's love for us should be reflected in how we love others. And Jesus shows that this is a love that supplants our love for ourselves that word supplant if we're having a supplanting love for others that word means to replace or to supersede so when I say that this love for others is supplanting I'm saying that it will take precedent not over our love for God but over our desire to take care of ourselves first let's look again at the words of of Christ in John's gospel in John 15 he says this is my commandment that, that you love one another as I have loved you Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, while Christ was explicitly talking about his future sacrifice that he would make in his death on the cross, he was also implicitly stating that Christians should have a sacrificial love toward one another. But this is not a love that comes natural to us, just as our love for God does not come natural to us. So we must understand that the nature of this love is rooted in regeneration. We are unable to love others the way we are commanded if we have not had our hearts changed by God. In writing to Titus, Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Quoting J.C. Ryle again, he says, We shall never love our fellow man aright till our hearts are changed by the Holy Ghost. We must be born again. We must put off the old man, put on the new, and receive the mind that was in Christ Jesus. Then and not till then, our cold hearts will not know true God-like love toward all. But again, it's not just that we are able to love others, it's that we should love. Love others. Just as a love for God is evidence of our salvation, in the same manner, love for others is a mark of being a Christian. If we go back to first to first John, the passage that uh, mister Cooney read for us, he said, If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has not seen, cannot love God whom he cannot love who 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 sorry. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him whoever loves Jesus whoever loves God must also love his brother. So if the nature of this love is rooted in regeneration, then the extent of this love is found outside of ourselves. There are many who would want to overemphasize the point that Christ makes here when he says love God more than self that the need for self-love, that we have a command to love ourselves, that they, they find that in there, that there is a command to love ourselves, but this is not the command. It's not a command because we don't need a command to love ourselves. As one commentator writes, "...even those who dislike themselves love themselves. They lavish attention on themselves on their efforts to feel better or to justify their misery." Paul made it clear in Ephesians 5, 29, no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Now, it can certainly be sinful to love self and the desire of our flesh, but it is also a natural duty to love ourselves and be concerned for our own welfare as we are an image bearer of God. And it's here that we are commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. And who is our neighbor? Well, that was the question that was posed to Jesus in Luke's account, which led to Jesus telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. And We can certainly start by looking at the Ten Commandments as this is the basis for this commandment, that we show our love for neighbor, our, our love for others, when we do the, the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. How do we love each other? How do we love our neighbor? We love, We show our love for others when we honor our parents by obeying them. When we show respect and dignity for all human life as created in the image of God. When we are faithful to our spouses. When we respect the right to personal and private property. When we tell the truth to others and about others. And when we will their good rather than covet their goods. Our love for God will manifest itself into a desire to love and to serve and do good for all of our neighbors. Now, this is going to look different in different situations. But when we are presented with opportunities to show love, we must obey that command. So as we have this mid-year evaluation, so to speak, when we look back on where we've been or even this past week, how have we done in showing love to others? Love for others means we will show the same love and care that we would show ourselves. When I have a need... I want that need met. Do I have the same feeling towards someone else who is in need? When I'm uncomfortable, I want to remedy that and make myself comfortable. Do I have the same feeling for someone else's discomfort? The point is, we are to care about others the way that we care about ourselves. We are to turn it around so that we get lost in their needs. If we love God, we will love others. How did we respond to that person who cut us off in traffic? How did we respond to that friend who asked us to take him to the airport? How did we respond to that person who was hurting after the loss of a loved one? And how did we respond when we encountered that person who needed to hear the gospel? Did we do the bare minimum so that we can at least check off the box that says we are a Christian? Or did we show a sacrificial love that says, I want to be like Christ? Well, I hope that we could all say that that is how we would like to live our lives, whether it's a New Year's resolution, a mid-year's resolution, or just you taking a stand that says, I want to be more like Christ. And if we are sincere in wanting to be more like Christ, we will have a display of a love for God and a love for or others in the same manner as Christ did. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each, one, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Christ demonstrated His love for God through His obedience. And in His obedience, He displayed His love for us. May our love for God and others abound in the same manner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have approached Your Word this morning and we have been faced with this challenge, Lord, of what it means to be more like Your Son, God, I pray that You would put within us, Lord, a desire, a love for you for all that you are from all that we are and god we know lord that we will always fail while we are in this mortal flesh we will fail to uphold that law but we are thankful for christ who fulfilled the law on our behalf but god we still want to show our love for you may our lives be a reflection of your love for us as we seek to obey you, to honor you, and as that love is poured out to those around us, beginning in our own homes, to our neighbors, to our community, God, Lord, that we would want to love others the way you have loved us. May our love for others be a testimony of your love and the salvation that you provide. We are, we are thankful and we praise you, God, for your mercy, for your grace. And we give you all the glory. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.